positive feedback loop. Welcome to Positive Feedback Loop, the show where we talk about things we find interesting and often disagree on. I'm Luis, and I'm joined by my co-host, Steph. Hello, everyone. And Ray. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Before we get started, I want you to take a second and just imagine that one in four out of every people, all everyone you know, one in four were gone. They just suddenly, from one day to the next, they were just poof, vanished. Now, that'd be, that'd be pretty awful. We can all agree on that. At least most of us can agree on that. But it also means that it wouldn't just be people that you'd be losing. It also means that you'd be losing the systems that you're used to. Because imagine that one in four people who work at your local gro- grocery store, at your lo- local gas station, at the DMV, who work in the government, all of them just vanishing. How would society work? What would happen when all of it just suddenly stopped? This isn't just fantasy. This has happened before, and it's happened many times before. This is what happens when a particularly virulent disease goes through a nation, really just leaving massive death in its wake and destroying the ability of the country to function, the ability of society to function. It destroys family units, neighborhoods. It destroys towns. And that's what we're talking about today. So on this very light note, hi guys. So on this very light note, let's talk about it. You know, that's that's really interesting, Luis. I didn't really think about it that way, losing 25% of the population overnight. And uh, it's really hard to imagine. I, I really can't see that happening nowadays. But like you're saying, it's it's quite possible. There's lots of different Diseases that we hear about, such as Zika virus, Ebola, there are even synthetic agents that different enemy nations could be creating in order to you know, destroy a population or something uh, that are very infectious. So it's scary. I don't know much about it, but it could be a good discussion. What do you think, Steph? My question for you two, do you know what the most impactful plague or disease or pandemic has been in the history of the world? Is there one disease that killed more than all the rest? The bubonic plague for one million. Well, I think the, bu- <laughs> no, I the bubonic know. plague no, it is... more than one million. Yeah, it's at hundreds of millions. No, what I meant millions. was for one million dollars. Like, oh, oh, oh yeah. Oh, <laughs> are we on the prices right A now, far happier price. Yeah, maybe um, like for 2000. I think more. you're right. I think it was the bubonic plague. Uh, what's I, interesting I, I, is yeah. there's like two eras of the bubonic plague. Like one is the plague of Justinian in the 500s. And then there's the Black Death that happened um, like 800 years later in the 1300s. The Black Death, I think the 1300s was the more impactful one because it was in the hundreds of millions. I think... One source I well, found said 75 to 200. And the population was, there's more to, to, to die. In the Plague of Justinian, I read that it killed 25 million, which is a lot of people, and especially in that time in the 500s. But in I that read, time, it was, that's 13% of the world at that time. Well, and not only is the it... the Mediterranean? 
That was about one in four people in the Mediterranean. Well, in Constantinople alone, in that city, it was 40% of the city. So imagine losing, you live in this, you're a city dweller. And we're used to living in cities. I mean, we all met in Boston. Imagine if 40%, almost half, basically, of Boston were gone. That's crazy. Thank God for the CDC. Yeah. Right, but, I mean, that wouldn't happen. Like, you, you said overnight, but it's not necessarily overnight. These things take at least a few weeks to really get into someone's system and kill them. It's not like all of a sudden they go to sleep and they're dead. In the scale of your lifetime, the way that these diseases spread, at least the, the like very pinnacle of mortality ones, they they run pretty fast. They can go through a population like knife a hot knife through butter. And it can be pretty bad when it happens. I mean, even even if it's not happening literally overnight. When, how long did the plague of Justinian take? Now I'm actually really curious. I have no I don't idea. I think it... It said it was killing an estimated 5,000 people per day That's a good at its thing height. To say. It took t- one year. It took one freaking year. Holy crap. That is insanity. I'm sorry. But just 13% of the world population in a year. No, I understand. It's very quick. I wasn't saying it wasn't fast. What I'm saying is it wasn't overnight. So there was some like time for people to panic and go nuts and uh, you know f- basically debilitate any kind of civilized world and that's all i'm saying so it wasn't like everything was great one day and the next you know lose 25 percent of your population no it wasn't like that it was much worse where you had a lot of time to let this uh, fester within the society you know a year like a month even two months years that's still not a lot of time but it's not overnight. That was my only point. Yeah. Wasn't a- On the personal scale, it's not overnight. For a government, yeah. it's absolutely overnight. Because imagine, a government has to collect taxes. It's got to pay its armies. It's got to like plan things for years to come and like make strategic movements. And at the time, for example, imagine ancient Roman times. Actually, not even ancient. This is like Middle Ages, like low Middle Ages, if anything. During this time, everything is much slower Right, tax collection—you got to physically go out there and like grab the money, right? Everything is working on a very different scale. And if all of a sudden, in within a year, you lose a quarter of your population, imagine all the plans that you had for the next year—they're all scrapped. All the systems you had, all the things you were building, all the army movements you were planning—done. And then you have to think about what are my enemies going to do about this? Because either they're sick. Or they're not sick. If they're sick, they're probably going to be taking the the week off. You know, they're not going to be doing anything. But if they're not sick, they're going to be coming after you. Because now you have no defenses. All your armies are in their barracks dying while your enemies are running loose through your fields, right? And this happened. I mean, the at the time of the Plague of Justinian, the Roman Empire had just retaken Italy after... The fall of Rome of the Eastern of the Western Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire came in, took back Italy, kicked out the 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 tribes that had taken it over, just to see it basically fall back into their hands after the plague. So it can be completely destructive to a society. 
I'm just thinking of also the emotional toll because in the 500s AD, people didn't know how disease spread really. And so it's just this like angel of death that's passing over you basically and choosing some and choosing others. And you have no idea how viruses spread the, the idea of contagion and those sorts of scientific facts were just unknown. So we're just dropping dead. They don't understand the complexity of what's going on. I think of now how, you know, the CDC or the, you know, at least in the United States, we have pe- most people have a good understanding of what it means to quarantine yourself, what it means to uh, keep your children from school, not going to work, even when you have a cold or something. Besides the bubonic plague, one of the other most common diseases to spread is the flu. And over the history of the world, influenza in its various forms has continued to be something plagues the world you know we, we've understood how to get flu vaccinations or how to how to eliminate the spread of the flu what you're saying is we have modern systems that we've created to try to stop this from happening such as regular flu vaccinations etc yeah but i mean a lot of people don't have access to that kind of thing i mean there are for example the hiv aids pandemic which at its peak was in the 2005 to 2012 range, and a lot of Africa has suffered from the AIDS pandemic. And that's, you know, tens of millions of people. And a lot of the problems today are due to just a lack of health care. And so you have some countries that have the type of health care that, that people in the United States had decades ago and so everybody's in a different place when it comes to dealing with a spreading virus yeah and if you just think about influenza and pneumonia by themselves according to the cdc it actually kills fifty-seven thousand people uh per year uh, at least in 2016 it was fifty-seven thousand people so this is an infectious disease it can actually happen to you while you're in the hospital you know so there are Lots of safety regulations around this, making sure that there's no spreading within hospitals themselves. Because that's also, you know, back in the day when the idea of germs was not fully understood, you'd have a place where you take care of sick, sick people, but then, you know, the people taking care of them were getting sick themselves. There was no understanding of germ theory. It was very misunderstood how these things would happen. So I think right now we're at a good point in life sciences where we can at least understand how you would go about controlling these things um, and we're doing a pretty decent job we've eradicated polio big deal um, you know we're working on the flu uh, HIV AIDS is now controllable at least the symptoms are controllable with you know sufficient treatments and we know how to stop it spread too which is you know a big thing yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, your point about huge. being able to control the symptoms is a big one because I remember at least learning about HIV and AIDS when I was in grade school. They tell you the facts about it because there's so much fear in the population at the time. 
they kind of inform you to control the fear. There's the pandemic, the physical pandemic of like the disease spreading. And then at least with HIV and AIDS, since that's kind of something in our own lifetime. But the around the pan- pandemic is this penumbra of fear. And fear is very contagious as well. And so you have the disease spreading in, in a dimension, and then you have the fear spreading in a dimension, and that has huge impacts on society as well. It's not just the people getting sick that, that affect the economy or that affect wars and, and all of the different societal dimensions, but fear itself can be a pandemic that also affects the stock market and also affects migrations and the choices that people make on a large scale. And, and actually, you bring up a point, and it kind of makes me think of my own ignorance. The reason I say that is because it, it makes me think of the fact that diseases can, that like that, diseases like AIDS, which are also kind of political in a sense, because they become kind of tied to a community, as it did with, you know, the gay community back in the 1980s or, uh, you know, all the way through until today, we still kind of like attach it to them in that set, in a sense. And when we were recording our previous episode, I want to give a little bit of a background on a little PFL behind the scenes. I made a claim, which we later took out, because I had also preempted it with, I'm pretty sure I might not be right. But just in case, I said that Graham Chapman of, the, of Monty Python had passed away from from. AIDS. And I was completely wrong. He passed away from from cancer. But the fact that in my head, I had just kind of put him in a bucket as doing that, as having passed away from from AIDS, kind of goes to show the way that these these thoughts, these, the disease can kind of infiltrate in other ways, not just in the form of horror or fear, but also in the form of creating stereotypes, right? These are diseases that only happen to these people. That's a thought that happens, that goes through our minds. And that can affect anyone. And everyone's susceptible to it. It happens. And I apologize that I even had the thought. There's a lot of misinformation that spreads. I think, you know, this isn't directly related to our conversation, but a lot of things spread by contagion. You know, my field, it's social media, and you want things to go viral. You're like, well, I hope everybody catches this, you know, whatever your content is. Some things you, you want to be contagious. Oh, and then okay, I caught a bad case of good content. Oh, yeah. Help me. That meme was amazing. But well, memes are contagious. Yeah, and, and what's interesting is memes act a lot like disease because, like I said, you know, influenza is one of the biggest hitters in the world uh, historically. In some part due to the fact that influenza changes strains. So you have a new type of influenza every year, and so you have a new vaccination every year. And memes function in the same way, where you have a meme, this originator, this content originator, but then it changes and changes and changes uh, to different strains of the same idea, but its manifestation is slightly different, and therefore can make someone laugh again, even though they've maybe seen... A similar meme because it's just slightly different so it's super similar but it reminds me of this idea of something being socially contagious and this does actually still deal with the physiology of something being contagious but it's instead of viruses there are social sociologists and others 
other scientists who say that perhaps obesity, happiness, loneliness, things that are both psychological and physiological can be socially contagious. So uh, I think I was reading on a Slate article from 2010 where there's a uh, sociologist Christakis and a political scientist Fowler who were talking about our behaviors, our emotions, our body types. They, they can all be contagious or they can be they can flow from friend to friend. Sorry, just trying to give Ray a chance to speak if you have anything. Yeah, I, I just don't know what we're talking about. <laughs> no, we're talking I, about right now, the, the topic that's been brought up is the idea of ideas being contagious. You're right, all right, I could work on that. So no, it's not just, because it's not just disease itself, right? It's So I just posted a video from CGP Grey um, called uh, I'm just this trying video not will to, make you angry. I just, I'm trying not to get into this like, you know, fake news discussion all of a sudden as being an infectious yeah. disease. <laughs> I don't want to get there. You don't have to go into fake news. You can just, because it doesn't have to be bad things that are infectious. Ideas are infectious. Oh, and that's right up Ray's alley. Yeah. Ideas are infectious. I get that. But what I'm saying is when you have like fake news being generated on people tweeting about something that actually hasn't occurred and just trying to draw attention to some propaganda that's kind of like a disease. So what I'm saying is I understand the discussion of how memes can be sort of infectious and viral articles and viral videos on YouTube and stuff. But I think that if we go that route, we can end up talking about like this whole plethora of just both coming out on the internet and it's kind of like a disease but if we focus on just infectious disease that affects biological systems i think that's interesting on its own and um do you guys agree because if we if we start talking about you know meta meta infectious diseases it's a different conversation but what i'm thinking about is when people's physical body is giving up on them because an alien bacteria or mutant is, has hijacked all its cellular machinery, basically, that's a big problem for that organism, that human, whatever. And we've come a long way. So what I'm getting at is we've come a long way to fighting these and protecting ourselves. We have vaccinations for kids and it's become mandatory. Even in um, third world countries, it's becoming more common it's still not to the point where we've eradicated all disease and i think it'll take a long time before before we actually get there but i believe like last year there was only like seven cases of the bubonic plague or the bubonic disease in america there was actually cases of it so it's not like it's completely gone can it come back and like destroy us all i don't i don't think so but there are issues now that I think is a big deal when you talk about people not wanting to vaccinate their children. I think not vaccinating children, I mean, based on all good science, is just a bad idea. Uh, and it's dangerous. And it puts not just those individuals at risk, but it puts the entire society at risk and our population as a whole. So I would fight to at least educate these people and not only that, but demand 
more transparency from the pharmaceutical companies who are creating these vaccines so we do know what's inside of them more specifically not just the antigens that help us fight the disease or protect us from contracting the disease but what kind of excipients or extra ingredients are in there that might affect us like some heavy metals or something like that i don't think i think that's why people are afraid to get these vaccines they think the government is gonna put nanoparticles in their body and track them so these things are i think not true but if people are thinking them we should be more transparent about it and at least show them that that's not true and not just make those claims the alternative is you die of mumps i mean before the vaccination program came out in 1967 186,000 people a year would die of mumps and now you know 2000 in 2016 you know, a few thousand. So we could avoid, I mean, a lot of people say, well, I'm afraid that my, that immunizations cause autism or they cause this problem or that. And, and the chances are X percent. And then, you know, if they live in a city, you're dealing with crowd control at this point, how many other people are vaccinated. You're hoping that you live in a developed enough place that enough other people are immunized to protect the spread of a disease that might affect you then for not being vaccinated. So there's a lot of risk inherent in you're trading one risk for another. You're saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to, f- to override the risk of whatever might be, whatever additives might be in the vaccination with the risk of getting this actual disease. Uh, I don't know what the the trade-off is. I don't know if it's a good trade-off or a bad trade-off, but it is a trade-off. But there there is no trade-off. I mean, the, I mean, the trade-off is you watch your kid possibly die or nothing happens because they're all evidence points that vaccines do nothing to you except in cases where people have allergies or like extremely rare medical conditions. There the There is no evidence of vaccines causing autism. And that fear, that idea, that infectious meme has been has caused a lot of problems for a lot of families and a lot of communities when the communities begin to put let down their guard and forget there's a reason why we have vaccination in the first place. There's a reason we have the systems we have. And it's very easy when we live in a developed country with all the amenities that come along with that, all the security that comes along with that, and you feel, hey, why are we doing this thing? There's, it makes no sense, but it absolutely does. You just haven't experienced the downside of not doing it. The downside of seeing hundreds of children in your neighborhood dying from very preventable diseases. The downside of seeing your community, your community wrecked with empty stores and you're, no one visiting you because they think, well, I mean, they're from that area. I, I don't want to go there and catch something. And just death and fear and constant that constant thing in the back of your mind that any day you could be next. That's why we have the systems we have. That's why we have the CDC and vaccination and all these other things. So the idea that hey, you know, it's a it, I, I don't want to get autism. I don't want my child to have autism. Yeah, no one wants their child to have autism. I would assume. But if you actually look at the data, it, that's not a thing. That doesn't happen. Well, and if they die of mumps, then you don't really have yeah. a choice. 
You will yeah, not exactly. see them well, grow if up. If they don't have mumps, you don't have a child with autism then. You, you don't have, have a child. child. Right. Yeah. So, Stephanie, this trade-off that you're talking about, it's not an actual trade-off like we said, but it is a perceived trade-off that some families have to make. Some communities do make that decision uh, based on false information. What yeah. I meant was when I said it is that it is a perceived trade-off, yes. Right. I just wanted to clarify that for the, for the audience, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I guess, though, it is a kind of a trade-off in the sense that you're trading your peace of mind for your child's potential death or just injury and illness because you are you're trading peace of mind you're 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 going well i perceive this to be a problem um so i'm going to not vaccinate my kid feel better about myself because i'm not putting my kid at risk of getting of of having uh autism but yeah there's a small chance they'll get something right it's about your feeling good about yourself even if you don't even if it's not that's not how you perceive it because you, you would perceive it as i'm saving my child from autism the reality is you're doing it to feel like you're saving your child from autism because if everyone's telling if every doctor's telling you it's not it's not actually what's happening that please stop please actually vaccinate your kid you know maybe take a hint right another thing i wanted to point out was we talked about the bubonic plague and a lot of these kind of scenarios playing out in history back in that those times you didn't have people traveling as much as you do now you literally have thousands of planes in the air at all times now so you can spread disease throughout the globe pretty quickly within a day or two everyone can uh, be potentially exposed to this and our world is getting smaller and we're getting more connected so this is becoming more of a potential issue in the future uh, and I think like you know I don't know it was like a decade or two ago we had people sending letters or envelopes filled with anthrax um, spores to government officials like th these things this bioterrorism that can can uh, cause these problems that's kind of scary um, I'm not trying to scare our audience but what I'm saying is it's something we don't think about on a daily basis, but it could be something that everyone would have top of mind if it starts to affect a community or a state or something like that. So, you mentioned anthrax, Ray, and this actually this is actually really interesting. So that information about that story, the 2001 anthrax attacks, kind of petered out after a while, and we didn't really hear about it or think about it. It kind of slipped out of the national consciousness, but. The, the investigation kept going, right? It didn't, it didn't just stop from one day to the next. And people had all these ideas that maybe it was like, you know, uh, they were the same people that behind 9-11 did it, or there was a big conspiracy, or Muslim terrorist groups were doing it. Actually, the person that, we, that is suspected to have actually been the one mailing those anthrax-filled envelopes was a bio-researcher, was actually a scientist who worked at a government biodefense lab, uh, whose name is uh, Bruce Edwards Ivins. He was just some dude, and although I don't know if we know exactly why he did it, uh, he ended up committing suicide before the investigation could really lead back to him. But after his death, it was really kind of steered back to him. It's weird how different the cause of the actual 
event is from our imagining of it. You should say it's weird how close to home it actually was, maybe. Well, the thing is, it's not even scary. It's just like, it was just some dude who was a researcher working on this stuff who decided maybe any, I don't even know if this is exactly it, but maybe he did it for more funding, right? Because no one was talking about anthrax. He, maybe he did it to get more funding. You mean more funding for the general anthrax research development community, not for him specifically? Because that would yes, be for the, for anthrax, since he was a person that worked in uh, that field. I mean, it's it's there's talk about it, you know, him having mental health issues and stuff like that. So maybe that's what happened, but it's difficult to know because he passed away. Well, people use disease as a means to an end, whether it's to get funding for research or win a war. There are people who are willing to do that. I think it's almost on the the level of torture because, I mean, you kill somebody, you bomb someone, they immediately die. You give them a horrible disease, on the other hand, and they're struggling for a while. It could be moments or days or years. And that's just a horrible thing to do to a person. I think of all the different ailments that human beings can suffer from as it is you know the idea of just being mortal but inflicting that on each other is in my mind even worse the the odd connection though is that we do suffer from diseases just naturally in the world just because that's part of being human Uh, we catch colds we get the flu we have any number of cases throughout our lives even in the most developed countries with the best vaccines and the best doctors and preventative care we're still we still suffer from disease and its spread and some of these diseases seem to not bother us even emotionally catching a cold is is maybe annoying at best but most people don't besides those who are especially frail in some way, don't worry about it. They think, oh, I've got a cold. It's going to set me back at work, but I'll go rest and then I'll get back to work. What I'm getting at is that there are some diseases we put more importance on than others. And, I mean, since this is a a podcast where we we sometimes uh, love to disagree with each other, I was thinking of, uh, Ray, what you said about, like, well, maybe we focus on just the very physiological, infectious, virus-related diseases. And there are other, I don't want to say, I don't know if I can call them, you know, diseases, but there are other, I guess, issues that do affect life or death and that do spread contagiously. I was reading on the cdc.gov site about the contagion of suicide and how adolescents, teens who have somebody in their social circle or their family or close in some way that commits suicide, they are more prone to commit suicide themselves. And this suicide contagion has been a real plague. I remember when I worked at MIT, there were a series of six suicides all happened in kind of these duos that happened close to each other. Now, I don't know if that was the effect of you know a su- like contagious suicide but i do know that sad circumstances like that are just are awful horrible 
and we see them so much as a choice that we don't realize the societal and sociological contagion related to those and they result in death just like disease results in death i i understand your point but in terms of suicide being an infectious disease or being i could understand how socially that could cause other people to feel like committing suicide but what i'm saying is i do not consider at least at this moment i don't think there's any scientific evidence that says there can be a biological agent like a specific type of bacterial species or virus or toxin that can you that you can put in a test tube and, and measure its you know, do a genetic sequence on it. You, there's nothing like that for suicide. At the moment, I'm not saying there isn't. I don't think there is, to be honest. But, you know, with science, anything is possible, I think. And the way we view the world now is not the way we're going to view the world in 10 or 50 years. But I would like to stick to the more biological agents. Very scientific physically available and chemically reproducible types of agents you know what i mean well that, but I think depression those... for example i mean depression isn't like some sort of metaphysical thing that happens to you it is is very chemical i agree but what i'm saying is let's say you have one person who is clearly diagnosed with severe depression Right, and then you take another person who does not have any form of mental illness at all, and you put them in a room with each other. You do not ask them to talk. You ask them maybe to shake hands, and maybe even exchange saliva. Right? Whatever. Just imagine. Yeah, you won't catch it. I mean, I know what you're saying. You can't catch it. You just want to focus on infectious disease, where something can actually biologically be caught. But if it's yes. something that physically happens to you and it can be caught in other ways, in the because sense that you share about- ideas, this idea of, of memes traveling and ideas traveling, if it results, if it has the same result, isn't it as important to consider it in terms of a disease, in terms of caring for others, preventative measures, deciding what is it that makes it so contagious, even if it is an idea? But this does bring into the idea of how we think about disease and how it kind of infiltrates the popular consciousness. And we're going to talk about that more on the second half. So stay tuned. Over the years, scientists have developed fantastic solutions to prevent us from getting life-threatening diseases like smallpox, rabies, measles, polio, and even the chickenpox. But why the chickenpox? Here at Animals Anonymous, we really feel that the chicken has been given special privileges. I mean, mad cow disease has shined some light on our cattle population. But we are here to spread the message about the minorities of animal named diseases. We have captured these highly infectious pathogens, and for a limited time only, they are on sale for listeners like you. Products include African rhinocerositis, puffy eye owl disease, flesh-eating fox pox, and giant otter syndrome. For more information, please call 1-800-KillerAnimalDiseases.com and sign up now. Welcome back, Piffles. Hope you enjoyed that commercial. Now, 
at the top of the first half, we were talking about infectious diseases themselves and kind of what they do to societies and how societies have kind of responded to them uh, in terms of, you know, the CDC, vaccinations, etc. And now we kind of want to kind of shift focus and talk a little bit about how culture has responded to disease. Infectious diseases are fairly common. Everyone kind of experiences them in some way, although we don't necessarily experience pandemics. And thinking about how it is that we see them in popular culture, whether that's in the form of games, movies, art, etc., is actually fairly interesting as well. So to start out the conversation, I have one example I can think of is the corrupted blood epidemic that happened in World of Warcraft, a video game. Uh, this is an online video game uh, where thousands of players are playing at the same time. And in 2005, they had created a boss who could you cast a spell on players called Corrupted Blood. Or I think that's what it was called. Who created uh, it? What do you mean? Uh, Blizzard is the creator of the game. But the, the boss itself had an ability that would cause players to have some level of... It's called... It, it's a debuff. So basically, it would uh, affect the players in some way. But it would also spread to nearby players. So if you were near other people, they would also get it. Now, originally in the dungeon this was happening, you couldn't leave the dungeon. Like, that was the idea, so that you wouldn't go around spreading the disease. But people managed to get out. And once they got out, then the disease just spread like wildfire through the world. And there were people phys- like actually going out of their way to spread it. Which kind of begs the question of why researchers were looking into it. Because they actually thought of it as a model for disease spread. Although, I don't know how many people in the real world go around trolling, coughing on people to try to get them to get sick. Well, I don't understand. When they created this special spell, they didn't know that this could have been a possibility? I don't think they it, suspected this was going to happen, no. Because, I mean, they, they probably thought about stopping people from getting out. I mean, I think they locked the dungeon down so you couldn't just normally leave. But they didn't preempt every possible way. I mean, players are creative. They find ways to do things that game makers don't generally design, and that's that's just what happens in a living game. That's interesting. I wonder what they concluded after that study. Like, was there any sort of new understanding about modeling the spread of disease? I mean, there isn't a disease uh, spreading model called the SIR model. S standing for susceptible individuals i is infected individuals and r is recovered individuals and you put it into this equation and basically it helps you identify you know how big of a population how fast the, the disease can actually spread within that population and it's widely used in lots of influenza studies and things like that it was but more about the mathematical model of the spread actually yeah that's what they were studying they were looking at because you can't normally go into the real world open up a a jar of, I don't know, flu, and, like, throw it on people and be like, all right, we're going to study you guys. Um, Well, didn't Facebook Facebook do something like this where they, or Google, they tried to track the search word cold or flu in order to identify which geographic areas are most affected by the flu? But wasn't that, like, not conclusive it was a bad study or it didn't really provide any meaningful information i don't remember what happened with that. i don't i don't know exactly what happened with that but it is it does give you a general idea of how much of a, of a thing it is in the popular consciousness although i guess if you're talking about the media let's say you're 
uh, you hear about a disease, you hear about swine flu, and you're in the U.S., and the swine flu started only, and it's currently in Asia somewhere, right? And it hasn't gotten here yet, and you start hearing about it on the news, you start Googling it, it's going to make it look like you have swine flu, if that's how the study is looking at it. So I'm assuming there's other factors that are being looked at other than just are people curious about this item? Because Google Trends can only tell you so much. And just like uh, you know the spread of uh, infectious diseases and all that, we also have the spread of, like we talked about before, ideas about infectious diseases, which is why we have things like zombies, right? I mean, they've been huge for a while. And I think they're starting to peter out. I think people are starting to get a little tired of them. So I have a question. If I were to come up with a fake disease, just make it up, maybe even post it on Wikipedia and write some fake history about it and then try to popularize it and then put some videos, fake videos of people being infected and cause massive panic and fear amongst people, how long will it take before people realize it was fake? That's a very good question. I mean, we've had entire epidemics of things that aren't disease. For example, there was that dancing fever in Strasbourg in, I think it was the 1500s. Uh, I could be wrong on this, but there was a, there was a point Where in time... Where are you getting these facts, Louis? 1500s? How did they spread this information in the 1500s? It, it was, it was, a, it was in, a, in, the, in Strasbourg. There was, uh, for like a period of like a couple of days... A wild dancing craze started where people were just manically dancing and they couldn't stop themselves. It was just no one knows exactly why it happened. There was people who say, oh, they're, they're the bread they were eating made like made them a little crazy. Uh, other people say, well, no, it was actually like people started thinking that they were being cursed by a saint. And then the, the, the curse started spreading. That's like the idea of it. And the town responded by playing music and encouraging people to dance it out. And That's so they really just, and it backfired. In the 1500s? I, 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 1500, I, I'm not sure the exact thing. Well, I mean, I, like, before the year 2000. <laughs> like, that's, like... Yes, uh, yes. This this happened a <laughs> long time ago. And you said potentially because of some bread that they ate or something. Because, you know, why that's interesting to me? Because I've also heard of similar situations where if, it, if you were serving moldy rye bread, so within moldy rye bread that mold that it can create can is uh called the ergot fungus and the ergot fungus is also the basic ingredient for lysergic acid and aka lsd so i'm just wondering if these people were just tripping on lsd on acid and had to dance it off because if that is the case that's a very interesting and i want to read more about that well, that's, that's one of the actual theories, yes. The idea of it having been L, basically LSD. But there's a lot of different thoughts, many of the which don't actually take the, the bread into account. I mean, that bread's been blamed on a bunch of stuff, including witches. So it's difficult to know exactly why that's the case. That being said, yeah, diseases can take a big place in the, in the consciousness, right? Even the idea of something being a disease or spreadable, even when it isn't, and your hypothetical infectious non-existent disease if little kids can kill can stab their friend over an imaginary monster i would not be surprised if people and i'm referencing here the slender man stabbing 
Are you familiar with this? No, I'm yeah, not. In, uh, a few years explain. ago, there were three, two little girls stabbed their friend in the, and left her for dead in the woods because they wanted to run away with Slenderman, an internet monster, a creepypasta. It's a copypasta of, of just like a creepy things that happen. It starts spreading like in the early 2000s, and it's just this like big dude in a suit that's very thin and has no face. And sometimes it's tentacles. I don't understand what you're talking about. You're, you just confused me more. Is this a real person um, or is this like a well, fake? Yeah, no, it's, it's just, just it's, a, it's, a picture. Fi- it's a fictitious monster that was created by the internet. And little kids in the, a few years ago, two little girls stabbed in their America? friend. In America? Yeah, in America. They stabbed their friend almost to death. She managed to survive. And there, there's a whole documentary about it. Beware the Slenderman. Uh, it was made in. It's a 2016 movie about the the case. I think it's on Netflix. Oh no, it's an HBO film. That's why. Hmm. But similarly, we have just like those ideas of stabbings, uh, you know, monsters, etc., can spread. Disease is also a form of monster itself. Yeah, and many times it's a disease. Or it's a monster that you cannot see, you cannot smell, you can only really feel it once you have it, and then it's too late. It's the worst kind of monster you can imagine. Well, it's even worse is that people feel like they become a monster when they have certain diseases, especially if the disease changes your appearance and how you feel, and that you can't even be near people or you might infect them. All of a sudden, you become a pariah or a monster or whatever it is. I mean, I think of society's reaction to leprosy. And many people know how lepers have been treated just from reading the Bible. Because there are a lot of biblical accounts of lepers who have to live, had to live in their own societies. And leprosy still continues today. A lot of people don't even know that because they think it was must have just been a something that happened in biblical times. But lepers then and and even some in some places now are considered by others to be some type of monster or person you should avoid and, and which is what has led to the development of of ostracized leper colonies. So there are those types, there are the pandemics that, that spread internationally, that go through cities and, you know, a certain percentage of the city might be affected, right? But then there are these diseases that have populations that are 100% the disease and they live quarantined in a completely different geography. Yeah, but isn't that to protect people who are not infected? Isn't leprosy contagious? Isn't that the point? I mean, I don't want to be living with lepers if it's going to potentially make me get leprosy. And I feel uh, sorry for those people, and I wish they get well, but I don't think it makes any sense for me to put myself into their quarantined environment. What's the point of that? There are some really awful diseases that also tend to quarantine people, even people who traveled abroad during the Zika virus and if they went to countries that had Ebola outbreaks, they had to also quarantine themselves. I think in a 
in certain societies, you can quarantine yourself in your house or in specific places that have quarantines. I know at there was, at a university, there was someone who had Zika or Ebola, something very current in the last two years where the student who had it then had to stay in their dorm room, for example, and the kitchen staff would bring them meals from the cafeteria where they would put the meal outside on the floor, knock on the door, then leave, then the student, after counting to 20, would then be able to open the door, get the meal, and eat it. And that would be their system so that nobody was actually handing off food directly to them or touching them or even having the door open between two people, one being infected, one not. So we do have quarantine practices in society today, especially in the United States. But we don't necessarily say, hey, all these people have Ebola. Why don't you go live in a completely different community down the hill once you have it? Like taking that college student out of their dorm. Yeah, going over to Ebola town. In nowadays just seems preposterous in northern northern American society at least. But I it you know, in many places that would just seem ridiculous. While in some cultures the creation of these towns with a certain ailment is normal. And I just wanna I just wanna note a certain thing about leprosy that I found while literally just Googling this during this conversation. Apparently armadillos can carry the bacteria that cause uh, that cause leprosy. So if you handle a lot of, of the armadillos in your daily life, please tell your doctor. Thank you for that disclaimer, um, Luis. I just I'm just doing my good for the community. Have you guys watched the movie I Am Legend? Yes, actually. What do you think about zombies? And next week's episode, tune in to Zombies Coming Back to Get You. <laughs> That's a great way to end this topic is on the disease that most people think about every day and will never contract. Yeah, yeah. Uh, zombies. They are a thing that people think about and they are a thing that will never happen and makes no sense in terms of it actually being a problem. And you, let's talk about the dynamics of zombies for a second here, because (laughs) they are, they would not survive as a species, let's say. Because imagine an infected zombie, right? You, You can't, they can't come back to being a human. They eat the, what they, their main method of reproduction is the same way as their main method of feeding. How does that work? Explain that. Zombies reproduce by biting other people, right? If you get bitten by a zombie, you become a zombie. That's how they reproduce. I mean, at least that's how it spreads anyways. But you also have zombies wanting to eat zombies, or at least non-zombie humans. So they start eating you, and it's only, I guess, at the point where either they're full or you turn into a zombie that they stop eating you. So this is a disease that eats itself. On top of which, it's a corpse. So, you know, it's not going to do too hot in hot weather. Animals are going to eat them. And on top of that, we have, like, the CDC. So why would an outbreak ever get out of hand? Especially if you can run away from them. But do zombies age? Like, if they 
I mean, this is a ridiculous conversation. Anyways, cause there's no... I mean, the only way for a zombie to die is to get eaten by an animal or to be, like, killed no, by a No, you shoot human. him in the head. You cut his head off. But can yeah, they be... generally shooting them in the head. But they can they... So they can't be eaten by animals, is what you're saying. Yeah, but, I mean, they can be rendered useless. Right, right. Because they can't... So they would still be living even if, like, they have random body parts that an animal has decided not to eat. Yeah, but, like, if you eat a zombie's legs, I mean, they're not really much of a threat unless you, like, run into them. Right. Well, zombies move really slowly. Unless they're moving really fast and they jump at you. It's a very strange thing. Yeah. Uh, the whole, like, zombie industry, that could be a different... That's a good episode by itself, I think. The zombie Except for I'm too clips. creeped out by zombies to be able to talk about that for an hour. <laughs> You mean like the one right behind you? I don't even know what to say about this. (laughs) Sorry, just... Well, what you're saying is that zombies and maybe the animals... Can you have zombie animals? Or I mean... They decay. What? Right? They're rotting. For the most part, when you see zombie movies, you don't see, like, healthy skin. You're seeing people who are decaying. So So at some point, the entire planet would die, is what you're saying. And then yeah, that's it. So it's one or of those Or you can find diseases. a nice place to hole up in and wait it out. Oh, right. You could. If you had the resources, you could do that. Yeah. Find an island. Go live in an island. and Because they're not swimming. Right. Wait for it to you like completely saturate the planet. Then decompose. And then you start humanity over again. And hey, free fertilizer. Gross. Yeah, no, it's 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 it, the zombies. The idea started, I think, uh, back in the '60s, but it's still going strong. And it poses an idea about infectious disease that's relatively erroneous, but at least it keeps it in our mind that something could happen and something could spread. So I guess it's not fully terrible, just because it at least gives us an idea about what a world where everyone has died because of illness might look like. Even if they tend to be, like, dystopian in the sense that, like, all societies crumble because no one can trust them each other. Which is not what we see when you actually look at history. In periods of great strife, people generally tend to turn toward, turn towards each other, not on each other. So, it's... Well, that's I why that, I agree with you that zombie media, for example, is is kind of its own ideological pandemic because it's anthropomorphizing disease and you're watching humans basically fight against each other then in in some sense so it's the opposite of what you're saying well they they, they fight against each other in two senses they fight against each other because they're fighting uh, past humans now zombies and they're also fighting against each other because i have yet to see a single piece of zombie media where the group of survivors gets along they form a community, and the community actually works together to survive instead of collapsing in on their own internal strife. I mean, humans started out working as communities. That's literally what we do. We form communities. That's our main strength, and that's how we've survived hundreds of other or thousands of other po- catastrophes and disasters, and that's how we form societies in the but, first place. 
But I would point out that's why pandemics happen is because we are networked with each other. It's network theory, mathematically, sociologically, in any facet of society, networks are what spread ideas, diseases, misinformation, whatever it is. And, and speaking of networks, dear Piffles, I want you to tell us how you feel about infectious diseases. Make sure you talk to your network about PFL podcasts and help keep spreading the viral disease that is our wonderful podcast. To all you know, go on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter at, at the PFL podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash PFL podcast. And you can go to website, pflpodcast.com. Please leave us comments, concerns, high fives, anything you want to tell us. We're here to listen. And as always, stay stay crazy. crazy.